This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the spring 2019 edition of Innovator Stories at UC Santa Barbara. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter <laughs> at John Greathouse. Our sponsor today is Nasif Hicks Harris & Company. I've been a client of Nasif Hicks Harris uh, personally as well as professionally through some of my businesses. The firm provides a full spectrum of public accounting services to local, regional, uh, national, and international clients. So they're a local firm with an um, international footprint. Its partners have over 100 years of combined experience in public accounting, and we really appreciate their support because without their support, we wouldn't be able to film this, and we wouldn't be able to offer it to folks uh, all over the world. So thank you. We have tonight with us Diane Flynn. She's the co-founder and CEO of Reboot Excel. Reboot is designing work cultures that support and advance women. They've helped over 2,500 women with their, resume their careers after taking time out from the paid workforce. Reboot Excel has been featured on uh, the Today Show, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, ABC News, NBC, PRI's The Takeaway, as well as The Huffington Post. Diane also consults for Fortune 500 companies that are interested in hiring, retaining, and promoting women. She facilitates workshops on professional presence and impact and coaches leaders on maximizing results and personal fulfillment. She's busy. She previously served as a number of executive roles, including chief marketing officer at GSV Labs. For a number of years, she was a marketing executive at Electronic Arts. Uh, And before that, she was an associate consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. She spent 16 years at home raising three children. Yet while she was doing that, she was also very active uh, and very impactful in her philanthropy and in her volunteering. Diane has spoken at South by Southwest and conferences on diversity, ageism, as well as the future of work. She earned her BA in economics from Stanford and her MBA from Harvard. We really appreciate her coming down from the Bay Area to speak with us tonight. We've got a big crowd here. I already feel the energy. Let's welcome her to our stage. Feel the love from UCSD. I do. The best, best warm welcome I've received. Thank you. <laughs> Should have been here for Deltopia. <laughs> Inside joke, people watching this at home don't know what we're talking about. Google it. So you, you earned your MBA from Harvard, as I mentioned. Um, then you spent about 10 years at Electronic Arts. Um, and you were in various roles there, um, vice president's position in sales and marketing and business development. You had a great career there. Do you remember, so we've got the students here. I'm just wondering if you can think back to before you joined Electronic Arts, um, what, kind of what drew you there, and were there things in your progression while you were at Electronic Arts that maybe you would do differently sort of looking back, and would you have managed that career slightly differently? So one of the things we'll probably end up talking about over the course of this hour Let's is do it. Uh, finding fulfillment. And um, I'll probably weave in a lot of messages because I now have children in their 20s who ask a lot of questions about, you know, career. And I give a lot of advice and they're kind of tired of me here. <laughs> me, so I'm glad to have a new so audience that might listen to me. Yep. Um, but I think I was always uh, somebody who thought a lot about my career and my life mm-hmm. and what is fulfilling. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that, including my family, who was always talking about goals and setting new, you know, um, uh, dreams. But when I got out of business school, I did a lot of self-reflection on 
what I had loved doing and what I didn't. Which I think is rare for people to go to business school because they tend to try to herd you onto Wall Street or herd you yeah. into a big consulting company. Sorry to interrupt, but, but I think being thoughtful isn't always what happens at that point in people's lives. Right. And when you look at statistics today, about 85% of people report that they are not fully engaged in their work. And to me, that's a really sad statistic. Yeah. And I coach a lot of people who aren't fulfilled. And the, the commonality is that they don't take the time to figure out what are their values. And I am 100% convinced that if you don't align your values with your work, you will never be fulfilled. Mm, mm. But it takes time to figure out your values. Right. And you're gonna, you know, your, your path is gonna be like this. I mean, when I was um, in college, I thought I wanted to be a reporter on the news. And so I spent my summer in Minnesota, where I grew up, um, schlepping around as an unpaid intern for, right. you know, like carrying up a camera for the, uh, for the reporter and the camera person. And after about six weeks of this, it's like, I don't want to be a reporter. Yep. You know, I realized that um, what I saw was the glossy part on the camera. Mm -hmm. But what, you know, you write, you're a writer, you understand the inner workings of some of this, you right. spend all day uh, talking to people who didn't want to talk to you, you know, <laughs> coming up with this amazing story, and then you watch it on TV, and it's 30 seconds. Yeah. And so then I went and worked for the Stanford Daily, because I thought, I want to do investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my whole career was like that. I thought I wanted to do something. I tried it out. I either liked pieces of it or I didn't like it, and then I went in a different direction. So back to your original question about how did I end up at EA, when I was at Stanford, prior to even going to BCG and business school, uh, I did a uh, independent study on, okay, this is really gonna date me, <clears throat> because it was computers in education, and it was back in 1984, when, does anyone remember what happened in 1984? You may have seen the advertisement for Apple launched their big the first personal computer, and, and so computers were not a thing. You weren't sitting there on a computer. You were all digital natives, we were not. Uh, so. So I did a lot of research around the um, how computers could be used in instruction. Mm. And at that time, there were a lot of reasons it wasn't appealing to teachers. Um, but when I got out of uh, business school, I thought back to what did I love? I loved doing that paper. I loved, mm. I loved being in the technology world and that space. I loved learning. And I saw a lot of potential for computers to be used for gaming. Mm -hmm and uh, gaming in an educational way, I should say. And so uh, back in the 80s, I interviewed with Trip Hawkins, who started EA, yep. who I found out is a friend of John's. Yep. And uh, he was the founder of EA. And at that time, it was just happenstance. Trip said, we want to get into educational software. And we're going to take a bet on you because, you know, you've done some work in this. Yep. And at that time, it was the learning company and Broderbund, and mm -hmm. that was about it. And yep. so um, that's how I got there. But the, the point that I think is more interesting to all of you is to constantly be thinking about what is, you know, I keep a list. What fills my tank and what drains me? And my goal is to always get more on the left side than the right side. Right. And every job is going to have its mix. And your first job and your second and your third, and you know, they're not going to be perfect. But to keep getting closer and closer to doing something that really fills you up, I think, is, is hugely important. Yep. That, you gave me an, another arrow for my quiver. I'm going to use it when students ask, you know, how do I find my passion? I love what you said about 
did you write a paper that you that you really got excited about? You know, that paper where you did more research than you needed to and it was longer than it had to be because you were so excited about that topic. That's a great way to self-identify something that instead of just sitting there in a chair going, what do I like? You know, and like trying to force it, just really kind of relax and think about things where you've gone the extra mile. So I, I really like that, uh, that example. So finding your values, is some, it's an ongoing process. I think values change over time. They t- change all the time. And that's okay. They yep. should and change. And they should. They and that's should why change. it's a process you need to do all the time. My values at my age are, as I'm looking at my last bird leaving my nest, are very different yep. than when I had three, to- or three toddlers. And they were very different when I was a single, newly married in my 20s. And they were very different when I was your age. So that is a, an ongoing process that I encourage everybody to think about. Yeah, and, I, and again, I don't think enough people are mindful of it, thoughtful about it. Can I add one other thing? Yes. How many of you are familiar with this concept of flow, being in the flow? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's, I can't pronounce the guy's name. Do you I don't know his remember. name? It's nope, his long book. name, yeah. but it doesn't matter. Flow is that state that he has identified that is when you lose track of time. You are so immersed and engrossed in what you're doing yep. that it could be playing the piano. Yes. It could be, for me, it's like, honestly, it's creating things in, in uh, Google Slides. It's creative activities that use technology. Whatever it is, uh, pay attention to that. Because those are the types of things that if you can find a job that will pay you to do those things when you yeah. are in the flow state, right. you will be very happy with your career. Yeah. And for me, it is writing. You yeah, know, I know right. that my favorite articles are often the ones that don't get that many views, but I just enjoyed the process. I just mm-hmm. literally had some music on and I look yeah. up and I'm like, wow, it worked. Yeah. And I strongly encourage everyone to have some sort of creative outlet. Um, it doesn't have to be painting or music or the things we classically kind of associate with arts, but it can be things. It could be scrapbooking. It could be PowerPoint presentations. It could be yeah. just something where you're freeing your mind up and you're actually creating an end product that you can point to later. Uh, and I, it doesn't have to be your career either. No, I'm just saying no. if, if you're really looking for that dream career, um, I have a daughter who's 24. She's at Airbnb now. She, from the age of eight, she planned our trips. She loved travel. <laughs> she loved leisure. She, <laughs> leisure. Yep. she loved, uh, she, and she always had this dream that she would work somewhere where she could travel the world and she could, you know, do, do good and have fun and work in cool office space. And I'll tell you, when she got out of college two years ago, she applied to 81, no lie, 81 companies. Mm. She was the most tenacious person I've ever seen. She got, I think, close to, I hope she's not going to be watching this, but <laughs> 79 rejections Yeah. Hey. or no responses, lots of no responses. But guess what? She got her number one choice. She was absolutely, I think when she went to the interview, she was very compelling because yeah. that is what was in her DNA was yeah. she wanted to work at that place. And that companies will pick up on that. Yeah. And when you're looking for a job, you only need one. So That's who right. cares how many That's right. That's or, what I kept telling her. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard one. to hear, but... Well, speaking of children, um, I know when my wife, when I first met her, she was like, I'm not going to have children. I'm like, okay, sweetheart, you know, I'm, we're dating. <laughs> she might come here later. Um, but as time went on, obviously that, that changed in her mind. When you, were, when you were at the age of many of the people in this room, so t- say 19 to 22, did you anticipate having children and taking time off? Or was that just something you weren't even thinking about? I always wanted to have a family. Right. I never thought I would pause my career. Right, ever. my wife either, same ever. thing. No, when I went through school, that I and by the way, I loved my career. I was mm-hmm. at EA for over 10 years, 
loved every, no, I wouldn't say every day of it, but I really did love it. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the, the thing I would encourage you all to say, which I, you know, never say never mm -hmm. because life happens. And I had a third child who was born with some medical issues. Um, I had a husband who was traveling all the time. I was traveling all the time. I had some health issues. And, you know, it got to the point where something had to give. Right. And, um, you know, I'm, I think that your generation is probably more enlightened about sharing careers and sharing home tasks. And, you know, it wasn't quite like that when I did this and I did a lot of the home stuff. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I did pause my career and it took some time to adjust to that new reality. Right. I have no regrets. And especially when you, you know, all of you in this room, you're going to live till on average, what, 82 uh, on average. More. More. These okay. people. These Okay. I'm living till 82 anyway. You can go to 100. <laughs> um, but that's a lot of years. You know, I mean, yeah. you, so... Hey, I took 16 years out of the paid workforce, and I make a point of saying paid because, yeah. <laughs> as John said in the intro, I worked hard. I worked hard as a mom. I worked yep. hard as a volunteer. Didn't get a paycheck. But I will never regret those 16 years. And now I'm 56. I hope to work for another 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I believe I can if mm -hmm. I'm, you know, blessed with, you know, the right health and everything. Right. So I would encourage you to think about a long life that includes a lot of things for some of you will be family and career and, and it might, you know, I know a lot of dads at our school that are yeah. staying home now. Right. And I love that. And then one of them just talked to me last week cause he is a senior as well. He said, I'm ready to go back to work. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of ways to navigate your career. Yep. And I think, I think young people, everyone struggles with it, but young people sometimes more than others. What, 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 what does society want? What do my peer group want? What do my parents want? And my, my wife had, we had one child where she worked and then we were fortunate that she had the choice, the option when we had our second child, she took time off. And both experiences she enjoyed for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's what's right for you at that time. It's not what does society think. I do think we're getting better about that and not putting a value judgment on someone if they do take off or don't take off. It really should be up to them in their circumstance. And if you're fortunate enough to have a spouse that can, that can really share some of those domestic duties with you, then, you know, then, then it will be easier for everybody. Absolutely. I, I didn't, I, um, I know that mentors are important to you. We, um, you know, we did talk before, we did, um, we did a thing for Forbes together, but I didn't have a chance to ask you about mentors. It's hugely important to this group here, personally important to me because I was blessed with some great mentors. Anything you wanna share about your, your, your career either in the early days or now where mentors have really made a difference? I had uh, two outstanding mentors who made all the difference in my career. I, I had more than that, but two specifically. Uh, one, well, no, I guess neither really I chose. Um, but I would encourage you to be a little more thoughtful about getting a mentor. Uh, one of them happened to be when I was at BCG. I was one of the few women there. And there was one senior partner who was a woman. And um, I wouldn't say it was a great fit for me, by the way. I don't think I was cut out to be a consultant. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of people from University of Chicago uh, I worked with who were very analytical, much more so than yeah. me. And I think that's also what drove me to EA is I thought, I want, a, I want a product. I want something tangible. I didn't really want to, at that point in my life, uh, be a consultant. But anyway, she had my back. And she brought me into all her projects. And it turns out, I don't know if you know this name, but it was Indra Nui who went on to run Pepsi. Um, she just retired after 
quite a lengthy tenure as CEO mm. of Pepsi. And uh, she's been supportive um, of what I'm doing today. But, you know, having her made a huge difference in my early career. My second mentor was more recent. He's uh, recently passed away, but it was Bill Campbell, who mm, you right. probably know. I'm, my husband coached football with Bill, and uh, Bill is going through cancer. Bill, Bill by the way, um, he's been on the cover of magazines as the the kind of coach to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. He, he was the chairman of Apple and um, Intuit and coached uh, the Google founders and whatnot, and just an amazing person. But um, here's another little lesson to you. So he was going through cancer, and I only knew kind of through my husband. I didn't know him well. But my mom always taught me, you know, don't just sit there when someone is going through a rough time. Do something. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote his wife, and I said, I just text her, I said, you know, is there anything I can do to help you and Bill? And she wrote back, she said, you know, Bill needs to get out and walk every day. And I don't have time to walk with him every day. Would you walk with Bill? Mm. <laughs> it's like, you know, just won the jackpot. Wow. So uh, I said, absolutely, I'd be happy to walk. And my husband warned me, he said, now Bill's always on time, so don't be late. So I would go to his house in Palo Alto, and I'd always get there five minutes early or ten minutes early. And Bill would be sitting out on the porch, and he was going through chemo, so he had to walk, and we walked kind of slowly. Um, but we would walk, and his uh, one of his close, very close friends was Steve Jobs. And so as we were walking, and Steve lived a few blocks away, he would tell me, you know, when I walked with Steve, you know, we sat here and this is what Steve told me here. And, but as we walked, you know, he just shared stories. And I think that's what some of the best mentors do. He mm-hmm. shared stories and he asked great questions. Mm-hmm. And this was all, um, so we walked once. And then at the end, he said, sit down. And we sat down and I said, you know, Bill, I'd, I'd be honored if you ever want to walk again. And he goes, that'd be great. Let's, let's do it every Saturday at 10. And so when he was in town and I was in, we would walk every Saturday nice. at 10 and sort of my Tuesdays with Maury um, right, story. Right. But uh, as we'd walk, he, he would ask questions. And this is when I was contemplating. I'd just gone back to work. Um, I had him come speak as, as one of our speakers at GSB Labs. And then I had this idea for Reboot. And I said, I just feel like there is this huge mismatch of highly accomplished talent in the form of women who pause careers and companies that could benefit from that talent. Mm -hmm. And I had just come back to work. I knew some of the challenges it took. Um, Technology was a bear, I have to tell you. I didn't realize that people could look at my calendar. And, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't know. I was social media, even though my background is in marketing, I really was a digital, you know, imbecile. And um, I had to learn all that. And I mm. asked a lot of questions. I talked to my millennial children. And I, you know, <laughs> finally, I would nudge the guy next to me who was like 26 and say, like, how do you do this? How do you? And he'd go, hmm, let me Google that. And after about <laughs> five of these, I'm like, I think I can right, Google that. Right. So I learned. And then uh, um, as I was sharing my story with other friends, they said, uh, you know, I'd love to do what you just did. Mm. But what I kept hearing is I don't feel current with today's technologies. I don't feel connected with a professional network and I have no confidence. And it was that confidence piece that really killed me mm-hmm. because I had, I was president of the parent association. I'd worked with all these people. Right, I would right. have hired any of them. Right. You know, they were just highly competent and yet they had no confidence. 
And so anyway, back to Bill, I, I said, I would like to do something to help these women. And Bill, um, take note of all you men out there, was a huge advocate for women. Mm-hmm. He he got a lot of women on boards in Silicon Valley and beyond, mm-hmm. and he always supported women. Um, and he said, Diane, you've got to do this. And so that was a huge vote of trust mm-hmm. that I knew. And it wasn't easy. I mean, being an entrepreneur is not easy. Right. It's, um, but having mentors, and my husband was hugely supportive, a lot of people were supportive, and you do need that to get through some of the, you know, rough days. Yep, that's wonderful. So you, I know you, you contribute to a class at Stanford on work and family, mm-hmm. work with a lot of young people there. Um, can you talk a little bit about time management? I know you're very good at that. I mean, you may not think you are, but you, it's something that you've learned a lot about over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, kind of the hard way, like most of us learn. How, how, do we have like two hours? Yeah, <laughs> right. Speaking of time <laughs> management. a lot of time management tips. But. Yeah, can you share some with, the, with this group? Because I think, you know, this is not the, the age where you really have those skills most of the time. One thing I, when I tell my students sometimes is, yes, you're going to college for many reasons. One of them is to learn how to manage your time. And that's not taught in any class, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. maybe you could share a few tips. Absolutely. Uh, well, one thing, I, I subscribe to Medium. I don't know how many of you read the articles or Medium, yep. a few. Yep. Many, uh, anyway, every day, and maybe it's the stuff I've chosen, but I read tips every day. And that's where I get a lot of them and I try a lot of things. Uh, but if I were to chisel it down to what is going to be the most effective to manage time, it is to know your priorities. And there are so many things begging for your attention right now, whether it's your computers. I'm hoping you're taking notes and not on social media. <laughs> um, it's uh, email. Oh, my gosh. Email. Could, you could spend all day right. just reacting to email. And so I would say the number one thing is every day I get up and I say, what are the three things I need to get done today? Just three, maybe even less. <laughs> But don't try to do 20 because you probably won't get them done. But if you know there are three things, then everything I do throughout that day is, I weigh it against that, is going down this rabbit hole in social media, getting me Mm. to get those Mm. things done. Mm -hmm. So that's one tip is prioritizing. Second is know know your own energy. And I know it sounds weird. But I'm a morning person. And believe it or not, my 18-year-old yeah, son too. is a morning person. And we've been up at, we call it the 5 o'clock club now. <laughs> and we get up and he started drinking coffee and we have coffee together. But that, that is my time, that 5 to 10. And I've even tried to uh, not schedule any meetings until 10. Mm. Because that is when I'm most productive. That's when I write. That's when yep. I think. I strategize. I get a workout in. I get everything like that I want to get done. And then conversely, I know from one to three, I am worth nothing. You know, I just can take a nap or that's when I schedule a walk or a meeting because I know I need to be with people. Um, I'm not a night person, so I don't try to do things after nine. Plus, you know, I'd like to sleep. So second thing is know your energy patterns. And uh, third one I'm going to throw out there, um, read Cal... Newport's book about deep work, or you know, just read an article about it. Deep work, has anyone heard that term? Okay. So the opposite of deep work is, anyone know? Shallow work. Shallow work is, what would be an example of shallow work? Email, right. 
shallow work is really, the, the way Cal describes it is the work that lets you keep the job. Deep work is what gets you promoted. And so most people I see are just treading water in shallow work. You know, every day they're reactive, they're keeping up. Yep. I have found, and I've been very deliberate, that I've got to carve out time for deep work. And so that is that, you know, that's developing intellectual capital. It's developing new ideas. It's writing your story. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that requires deep work. It, deep work is that time when you don't want to be interrupted. You need to focus. You need to be in the flow. Um, I turn off email. I go to my favorite coffee shop. My favorite place for deep work is actually on the airplane. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I don't buy Wi-Fi. I can't get distracted by yep. anything. I'm sitting in my seat. I usually have a cup of tea. And I get more done on a six-hour plane flight than any. And in fact, there's a funny story about a guy who wanted to finish his book. I think it's in Cal's book. And he booked a plane flight to Japan and back to oh, wow. just to finish his book. So I guess I'm not the only one right. who does that. But, you know, figure out what it looks like for you. But, you know, have those priorities and then put them on your calendar. You know, if I, if I have a project that's going to take two hours, um, I schedule it. It's an appointment for myself. And then that is uh, nothing gets in the way of that. Right. Yeah. And you have to protect that time. That's the. It's one thing to Absolutely. to do it, I mean, to write it down and then to let the, all these distractions come in. No, you and, have to be true to your calendar. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and take the first student's question. Uh, since starting with Reboot, how much change have you witnessed in the gender gap imbalance that you're striving to, striving to fix? And what are the next steps that individuals and companies can take to help with this issue? Yeah, go. great question. Uh, it's changing. It's changing. It's not changing as fast as I would like. Uh, a number, BCG, McKinsey, and the Harvard Business Review have all done fabulous studies lately and researched what is really happening. Um, some of the more recent research is a little depressing in that area because what they're finding is companies are actually quite good now at bringing in a pipeline of women, and a lot of them are 50-50. It does vary by industry. If you look at uh, some of the more, we work with a lot of companies in the Midwest that are industrial, energy, mm. uh, they are almost all men. If you look at healthcare, consumer goods, some industries uh, skew sometimes up to 85% women. So it does vary a lot by industry, it varies a lot by role. And uh, finance, legal, marketing, HR, a lot of women. Unfortunately, technology, not, not so much. I mean, it's still in the 25% range. But what, what tends to happen, and, and when I say 25%, I think it's from 19 to 24%, if you look at Google, Facebook, um, Apple, and one other that I just read. So, I mean, it's, it's low, and we're, it's not getting better because we're not graduating enough women mm. in these engineering right. programs. Whole nother issue. But the real problem is... Not so much the pipeline coming in. It's when you get to you get to manager, it's still parity, and then when you get to the executive ranks, it really skews. And men are advancing, and women are not. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And that is really where we are focused when we work with companies: is how do we advance and promote women? And I think um, I'll just throw out a few ideas that. Uh, a lot of this is based on research, and again, BCG is a fabulous study if you care about this. It's called Six Hidden Gems of 
gender parity or gender equality at work. And a few of them are employee resource groups. And that is they have women's resource groups. They have you know resource groups for almost any type of underrepresented group. It can be a men's resource group. Part of the idea of resource groups is they are open to all. There are now, um, I just interviewed a woman at Airbnb who has a group called uh, Wisdom at Airbnb. It's for um, people over 40. Mm. And uh, Uber has Uber Sages. Google has Greglers. These are all employee resource groups for older employees. I would qualify for that one. So so would I. so, so these employee resource groups for women are, I think, really impactful, and we do a lot of work to um, facilitate workshops for them. Coaching is something that has a lot of impact when uh, executives were coaching two executives who are, you know, pushing on the C-suite, and that's the goal is give them a little extra. Because mm-hmm. a lot of these women, what they have found in the research is they don't have the same networks that men do. And I'm married to a golfer, and I know mm-hmm. how much business he has right. gotten as a result of his golf connections and his weekends away. And his. And a lot of women don't have that. A lot of women are the only woman in the room, and they don't have the same access to support. So all of these support things through coaching. And, and, um, and then another intervention that is uh, really powerful is the leadership. The CEO needs to buy into it. And so a lot of the work we're doing is helping educate senior leaders of why diversity is important, why, why there has to be more than one woman on a board or one woman in the executive ranks. Um, you know, when we talk to women, we talk about something called amplification, which was a concept that came out in the Obama administration when the smattering of women in the room were realizing their voices weren't being heard. Mm-hmm. And they would say something and... It would fall on deaf ears, and then a few minutes later, a guy in the room would say something, and they'd <laughs> say be like, the same ah, thing. that's brilliant, John. <laughs> and so they started amplifying each other's voice. The right, women in the right. room would, you probably wrote about this or yep. read about it. Yep. Um, but that was a, a very conscious technique, and Sheryl Sandberg has even talked about mm-hmm. the need for it. And she said, it's sad, and I hope that we get to a day where we don't have to amplify women's voices. Right. But anyway, these are some of the things that companies are starting to do. There's a lot more attention that's being placed on it, which is great. I think it's going to take time. But all of you in the room, men and women, you can have a huge impact. And, you know, who you're hiring, who you're advancing, who you're promoting, what language you're using in, in your job descriptions and in your performance reviews. Um, I just posted something on LinkedIn a few weeks ago that was a study of words that are used to describe women in performance reviews and words that are mm. used to describe men. And for the most part, the words, the positive words for women were collaborative, team builder, you know, and men, it was strategic and uh, long range thinker. What? Aggressive. Aggressive, uh, strong, you know, a strong woman, it was sort of uh, uh, harsh or bully or, yeah, yeah whatever. Right, right. So there's lots of things we can all do um, at home and at work to create a respectful environment for all. Yeah, I've tried to do that in my classes, and I, what I found is if I set the stage early and I'll actually say, come on, women in this room, what ends up happening is all the guys start talking, and then by the eighth week, 
none of, none of the women are talking because the guys are filling up all the space. Mm. And I found just by doing that and just by reminding people like, you know, this, you guys are paying the same amount of money. Let's get the same amount of education out of it. And encouraging women to come to office hours specifically saying, hey, office hours, you know, are typically more guys come than women's and that's not right. Like you should be getting that extra benefit of office hours too. And I find that that helps. It's, it's, There's a, a body of sort of research around this idea of the imposter syndrome. Yep. Have you heard about that? Yeah. Uh, it's this idea that, uh, and, and, and everyone has it. I mean, I feel like it on stage right now. Like, yeah. why am I here? But it, it's this idea that, you know, you're a fraud or you're, you're really not worthy of what you are um, being uh, able to achieve. And where it really plays out, though, according to this research, is who applies for certain jobs. Mm. And um, there's a study, and I've heard lots of things quoted that are kind of all over the map. But the basic idea is that um, a man will apply to a job if he has maybe 60% of the job requirement, if he can tick off 60. A woman often feels the need to check every mm. single box. They feel like they have to head it all. And so we have a job board for what we do because we have a lot of companies that call us and say, I want to hire um, some of your returning women. Mm -hmm. And by the way, returning, I think I've heard some people think it's returning to the company they were working at. In When I use that word, it's people returning from a career pause. But we actually change the job descriptions knowing that a lot of our women who already lack confidence are not gonna apply mm. to that job if mm. it has that many requirements. Right. So we kind of sometimes dummy them down and say, you can apply if you have this, because sure. and a lot of them are getting these jobs, but they're afraid to apply. Well, and young people often don't realize because they've never created a job, you know, job offer. You and I have. That's your wish list. You're like, okay, exactly. if the perfect person walked in, they would have all these things. But I know I'm not going to get that, so I'm looking for some subset. But you yeah. read them. You're reading them on, on a website. And you're like, wow, I don't have any of that. Or I have two or three of those things. Look, if you want to work at that company, convince the company that you're the right person and you're going to add value and you'll get the job. You but, rarely get. You rarely hire anyone with all those things. No, that doesn't happen. Just apply. If you think you're a good candidate, figure out a way to package yourself. We do a lot around uh, branding yourself. Mm. And uh, now, you know, that was a thing that didn't exist before social media, but now you are a brand. And even if you're not on social media, that is your brand. Right. So we, we have an event coming up in a, um, next month at the Stanford Business School. It's called Brand Yourself for the Career You Want. And it's specifically for women. Uh, a lot of them are women returning to careers. But you have to be really cognizant of um, what, what job do you want? If you want a job in sustainability and you really care about the environment, well, you know, people are going to look at who are you following mm. and what are you writing about and what are you posting and uh, what activities have you participated in? Where do you volunteer? They're going to look at all of that. And if, if that's who you are and the job you want, you know, employers will look at your Facebook pages and they will look at your everything. Yep. <laughs> um, so look at your picture. You know, is the picture the reflection of you that you want out there. I've seen some pictures that really are such a turnoff for whatever reason that yeah. I don't even return calls sometimes. Right. Pictures make a difference. You know, if you're at a party and you want to post that picture, just think about who might see that. Your brand yeah. is really important. Right. Be mindful. 
curate that brand, start now. Mm-hmm. And, it's and not be just, authentic, yes. you know, it should be your brand. It's it not just deleting a couple of pictures on Facebook, <laughs> it goes mm-hmm. beyond that. So I, I, we did a thing for Forbes together and I asked you about this, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts um, uh, for the class. The movie, The Intern, mm-hmm. fun movie, Robert De Niro, remember he's an old guy that goes, it's a little formulaic. But I, there was things I liked about that movie and I did like the rapport that he struck up with the younger woman, that mentoring role. Um, do, do, do people think of that, do, do they think of that movie sort of as that's what you're doing, but with women, does that come up and, or has it been so many years now that it's not? No, it does. And I, I don't know, have you all seen The Intern? How many people saw The Intern, it? Robert De Niro? Oh, so quite okay. a few. All right. Uh, it's, the basic story is a company hires a 70-year-old intern, it's Robert De Niro, and um, they bring him back. And he had a successful career, I think, as a banker or something. They, I think they just executive. I'm executive. not sure. They... And uh, when he comes back, you know, the first few days, he's the awkward old guy in the office <laughs> dressed in the suit and, uh, uh, you know, getting up to shake hands. And, you know, the young people are like, who is this dude? And, <laughs> and by the end, you know, he has a lot of respect from the people he's working with. And he especially starts to mentor the CEO of the company, who's mm-hmm. in Hathaway, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they have a really special relationship. And where I... Um, where I often invoke that is when I, I do a lot of work with companies trying to sell them on why they should hire my women, um, the demographic being older, you know, 40, 55. And uh, what I always say is, you know, because sometimes their arguments are, well, are they serious about their wor- their career? They took time off. Are they energized? Can they learn new stuff? And so sometimes I'll say, remember Robert De Niro when he got up at five o'clock and hit his alarm clock and jumped out of bed and got dressed. And I said, that is how truly how our women feel going mm-hmm. off to work. They mm-hmm. are so excited. I mean, mm-hmm. imagine, you know, you're all wonderful kids, but imagine staying home for 20 years with, <laughs> with toddlers and kids. Right, right. It's kind of fun to like get dressed up and go to work and work with young people. Yep. I mean, that was part of the joy of when I went back five, six years ago now, uh, working with people who were my kids' age, I got a ton out of that. I learned a ton. It was really like, you know, I, I felt youthful. And I hope that they got something right. from the relationship with me. And so I think um, when you go off to work, I'm a big advocate. You're going to be working side by side probably with five generations of people now. You know, if you're 20, you might work with 60-year-olds. And figure out what everybody has to offer. Yeah, totally. You guys have a ton to offer. You are youthful and digital natives and and wicked smart and quick um but there's a lot of wisdom with age and you know there's a a lot of pattern recognition that you just develop over time that you don't have in your 20 it just it is and so figure out how can you you know there's this new concept called reverse mentorship or mutual mentorship and and it's this idea of pairing someone young and someone older, and they learn from each other. Yep. And it's really, when it works and both people are open and sponges to learning, it's powerful. Yep. I mean, I, I, I talk about it a lot. I, I ended up having two mentors, as you did, one really late in life, and I still learned so much mm-hmm. from that person. He's 14 years older than me. He's in 72, right? So he's, he's older, 
but he still has so much, so much value to, to share. Every time I meet someone, I really do try to think, what can I learn from this person? Because everyone has their story. Right. Everyone has something of any age. And I most learn a people, lot from young people. Most people want to help. Absolutely. Especially when they want to help young people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to the next student's question in a second. But I wanted to ask you, how did you get so much great PR? So, I mean... <laughs> The Today Show, well, Wall Street Journal, helpful. Forbes. You got us in Forbes. Wow. All right, we won't, we won't list Forbes here, but I think you got in from, with somebody else. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm wondering, is, are there tips or tricks or just basic blocking and tackling? So you have a great story. So it, it obviously helps to have a great story. But a lot of people have a great story, and they're not able to capitalize that in the media. Mm-hmm. I have this saying that I've started to internalize. I think you create your own luck. You know, the day I walked into work and our receptionist, Brian, jumped up. He's like, Diane, the Today Show called. Mm. I'm like, yeah, Brian. He was kind of our prankster at work. <laughs> and, you know, the next week, Today Show came to film what I do. Um, yeah, was that absolutely lucky? Yes. However, I started deconstructing. How did I get the Today Show calling me? Well, it was a lot of actions I took Mm. in the process. You know, I first had to have an idea. I mean, I went for months walking with this idea in my head. I finally called my daughter in Austin, Texas. I said, she's a really good graphic designer. I said, I have this idea for Reboot. Can you make me a logo? She made a logo, and I put it in my purse, and when I go to dinner parties, I'd pull it out, and I'd say, hey, guys, what do you think? And by the way, it's a great idea if you want to be an entrepreneur. Like, get some feedback from people. Don't worry about <laughs> people stealing your idea because, right. trust me, it's right. 95% yes. perspiration yes. and 5% inspiration. So, you know, I got, I got all this um, feedback. And uh, uh, so, you know, I had to do that. I had to make it happen. Um, one idea that did help me with my advisory, uh, with my PR, was I created an advisory board of directors. Mm. And at the time, they were just advisors. I don't really have a board. But I handpicked people from different areas of expertise. So I had a woman who was the um, brand marketing, global brand marketing at Airbnb, because I wanted someone with marketing. I have the chief diversity officer from HPE. And by the way, I just called some of these people. I didn't know them. And I, or I had a connection who Made put me in touch. Um, most people want to help, as mm-hmm. you said. Um, but one of the people I put on there was uh, somebody who had her own um, PR firm. Because I knew we wanted PR, and I didn't know how to get it. I don't know anything about PR. And so she was very helpful in that. Um, I think the real lucky break was uh, the, the takeaway, mm. PRI, mm-hmm. you know, the NPR yep. thing. Uh, I thought the Today Show would draw a lot more people. We had our team all geared up for all <laughs> these calls and all this web traffic. The takeaway brought in a lot really? more traffic. And so Olivia Stearns, who was the reporter from the Today Show, uh, happened to hear me driving mm. um, to work one day on NPR. Yep. And she thought this is a great story. So, you know, I don't know exactly how we got it, but one thing you do have to have is you have to have a unique idea. Yep. And then you have to know how to package it. And then you have to just keep putting yourself out there. And we got connected through a you, you know, yep. I took a call from Carolyn, who I didn't know, but someone said, you need to meet Carolyn. I talked to Carolyn from my vacation. I remember where I was on my son's college tour. And she said, you got to meet John. So then John and I got connected, and then I got in Forbes. So, you know, I just keep saying yes to things. 
Yeah, I think good press begets good press, right? Because mm -hmm. as you said, you, the Today Show heard about you from the radio show, and it just kind of goes yeah. on and on. But obviously, you have to get, have a good underlying story. Right. Uh, it's just not going to keep going. Um, I think I'm going to take a couple of students' questions. I've been doing a lot of talking, so we'll get a couple. Um, you just touched a little bit about how the company started, like on your walks, getting that courage to speak about it and start it. But did a specific instance happen in your life that made you inspired to start this company? And um, did, like, did something specifically instigate that desire for you? Yes. And uh, so... Uh, Six years ago, I was uh, after the toward the end of my 16-year pause. Um, I was diagnosed with my second round of cancer. So I had cancer when I was 15, survived that, and felt very grateful and very blessed. And then had breast cancer um, uh, six years ago. And so uh, I look at all these what appear to be really painful experiences as a gift. Because it was a gift, it was a lot of time on the couch in self-reflection, which if you recall, that's how we started today's talk, is the importance of self-reflection. And, and as I had that time, I really did spend a lot of time thinking about what, what is life about and what, what impact do I want to have and what does bring me joy. And uh, there's uh, something I read I thought was interesting. Think, think about... Um, there's a difference between your um, uh, your resume and your eulogy mm. as a director. You know, your resume is all that stuff that John mentioned when he brought me up on stage. But, you know, my eulogy, no one's going to say any of that. Right. You know, hopefully they're going to talk that I, about me being a good person with integrity, that I'm authentic, that I like to change lives, I like to help people. I have a lot of relationships. You know, those are the things I really care about. And I think those were the profound thoughts I had. And so, you know, and then I did have some lucky little breaks shortly after that. Um, I had an opportunity to go back to work. But, it, you know, that job was a great launching pad for me to come back into the job market. But the whole time I was there, you know, I think my real passion was around um, helping women. And... I'll never forget, I was with our CEO at a, a bar a event, a work event, and somebody said, so what do you do? And I was kind of wearing two hats at the time. I was chief marketing officer of this tech company, and then I was also starting, I, I was just running this program called Reboot. It was a little program I did on the side because I thought it was important. And so I was telling somebody, you know, here's what we do at GSV Labs, and then here's what I do at Reboot. And afterwards, here's another mentor moment. The CEO pulled me aside, and this is who I reported to, and he said, you know what, Diane? I watched the way mm. your eyes lit up right. when you talked about Reboot. He goes, you got to go do that. Wow. And that was the moment that I said, you know, you're right. That, that is what I want to be doing. And so I am very fortunate, by the way, that I get to do things that I want to do without worrying too much about you know, financial, but, you know, I did worry a lot about finances a lot of my life, but right now I'm in a different position because I, you know, have, I'm at that point in my life. Um, but that was my, that was my probably turning point. So my message to you, when you have your challenges, and you will, we all do, and some are bigger than others, uh, use that as an inflection point 
and think about what is that teaching me? What is that telling me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also think about failure as, as failure is not failure. It, it, and I think Oprah said this right here in your backyard. You know, failure is information. And what information is that telling you? Is that sending you on a new path? Is it telling you you need to upskill or retool or go deeper or do something different? But use it as information and use adversity as information and use suffering as a chance. You know, I think suffering, you develop a lot of empathy. My son was born with some medical challenges. I spent a lot of, he had a lot of surgeries um, when he was born. He's now 18. He's doing great. Thank you. Thank goodness. Um, But that was, I was at Stanford Hospital so not much that I said, I want to get back here. I, I, I see these families struggling. I feel like I could help them. And for 16 years during my pause, I was an advisor at Stanford Children's Hospital. Oh. And I sat on committees and I was the voice for families. That was my voice. I was the diverse voice. And we'd have nurses and doctors come in and say, you know, what do you think about these IV starts? How can we make it better for mm. patients? And I had a lot to say because we were a patient. We were right, a family. Right. So I think you can t- turn any adversity into something positive. Yep. Yeah, don't personalize it as woe is me. It's, it's this, you know, you can have that moment too. But don't make that the only moment. Like build mm-hmm. upon that. Uh, and, you know, take your time to grieve too. I don't, sure. I don't mean to be yeah, yeah, like. Yeah. I don't want to be flippant about it flippant. either. Yeah. Right. There's, and there's a lot of, you know, really tough stuff. Yep. But. If you can somehow find that little nugget or that silver lining that can give you some meaning and purpose, I think it's um, it can really catapult you into a direction you may not have even thought you'd go in. Right. I, I want to get to the next student's question, but touch upon one thing you said about the eulogy versus the resume. Mm-hmm. I, I think Guy Kawasaki had this in his book. I know um, you know his wife very well, and I'm sure he got it from somebody else. But basically, he's saying, what, what three things would you want to hear at your own funeral, like over here? And it's mm-hmm. not typically the things that we tend to value in our day-to-day, you know, how big is my house, how you know, cool is my car, how all these things that we think are important to other people and to ourselves. I would hope those aren't the three things. I would invite all of you and everyone watching, what, think about what those three things would be. What would the three things you would want to hear people say about you? And I bet you it's not your material possessions. It's not how hard you worked or the career that you had. It would be things that are much more in your control, quite frankly, things that you can make happen yourself. So this is the right age to have that, that those thoughts. It's too, too late for me, but not too late can, for you Can guys. I share uh, one of my favorite favorite thinkers, I don't know what he is, but philosophers, I guess, um, is Martin Seligman. And he's done a lot of work around happiness and fulfillment. And I will summarize it down to, he, is, he says there's three ways to live. He goes, there's the, there's the pleasant life. The pleasant life is the accumulation of stuff. Mm. It is the big house, the fancy car, uh, maybe the job. The, it's, it's the stuff. But that stuff is very transient, and that stuff can make you happy for a few minutes. You might go shopping, you might get a great jacket, and you feel great, but you know what? It just, it's not lasting. It's the pursuit of the stuff. The second level he describes is the good life. And if you remember the idea I brought up of flow, that is when you're in the flow, you are doing work that just really fills you up and turns you on, and you are, you are, that is the good life. And that is good. But he says the meaningful life, which is the third and the deepest and the richest, 
is when you get out of yourself and do something for other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just think of that a lot because I live in a very affluent society up right. in Atherton where yeah. I see a lot of that, that pleasant life. Yep. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's not sustainable. And it's really, as I get older and older, <laughs> not that old, but, you know, I see a lot of people downsizing and, and you know, they're really happy. Mm-hmm. They have less stuff. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think your generation actually has more figured out than we did. I think I see my daughters, they have small little places. They don't have a lot of stuff. Yep. And I think that that seems to be a trend. It's there's this... Um, uh, the shared society, shared mm-hmm. economy, where you know people are sharing things, and and uh, just you know think about your neighbor, your relationships, and I think um, that's another interesting study on longevity. Of, it was out of Harvard of who they I think it was thirty years of tracking people, and they found the one thing that created the greatest fulfillment and happiness in life was relationships. Mm. It yep. didn't. It wasn't your affluence. It wasn't your job. It wasn't any of that. It was. Did you have meaningful connections with people? Um, it's. So. It's. I'm sure someone else has said this, but one of the most selfish things you can do is help someone else because it makes you feel so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least I think that's true for most people. So young people often say, "Well, yeah, it's easy for you guys to sit sit up on that stage and say that about how important it is to help other people." I'm young. I don't have any money, and I'm busy. But everyone in here has a skill that they could share with somebody. You have time that you can share with somebody. You could tutor a fourth grader how to read. I think everyone in this room is qualified to tutor a fourth grader on how to read. There's things you guys can do that are helpful that would be a pretty modest amount of your time, and I think you're going to be shocked at how good it makes you feel. So I would invite you to think about things you might be able to do even in the next um, eight weeks we have left in this quarter locally. And, And believe me, there's so many opportunities to do it. The schools love help, right? The public schools just love having folks come in and try to help. So my last question is, where do you want to see Reboot Excel in 2025? So where do you want to see it in the next five or six years? What's, what is your goals? We've talked a lot about goals and planning. How are you going to define success in the next five or so years? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because most people coming out of schools like this who are doing something entrepreneur, they're looking at how to scale this, you know, world domination. And, and there was a moment where I thought, you know, when people, the Today Show was saying this is such a good, I thought, you know, that'd be kind of fun. And at one point we were in, I think, nine different cities with le- people leading these cities. Uh, I realized a bunch of things from that and I won't go into all, but one of them was it wasn't filling my tank. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want right. that. You know, all I really want to do is help women. I want to help workplaces. I want to do things that fill my tank, which I love consulting with companies. I love coaching. I love helping. But I love doing this. I love teaching, um, workshop facilitation. I love all that. So I just want to do more of that And personally. And then as far as Reboot, you know, I would love a world where we don't really need a Reboot. You know, I'd love a world for my daughters where they never have to pause their career but I wish they could work 10. I would have loved to work 10 hours a week or 15 mm-hmm. or 20 hours a week. And I would love for my husband to do that. And I would have loved a lot more fluidity and flexibility. And, and that's one of my big messages to work uh, places now is there's just no reason for a nine to five or an eight to eight or whatever schedule, yeah. because you're always on anyway. You're on 24 seven. You know, my daughter all weekend has her Slack thing beeping. And, <laughs> and so 
you know, Airbnb, for instance, has work at home Wednesdays and mm. she loves that. Mm. Why can't more companies, why can't you hire somebody 20 hours a week? Right. Um, I think Amazon now has a 75% pay, 75, you know, what, four day a week option. Um, I love, there, there's a company in New Zealand that has experimented with the four day work week and they found that the people working four days are more productive more innovative, happier, more willing to stay. Actually, they're more innovative because they have that free time, that mm -hmm. margin to be creative and pursue their hobbies. And, and so 28 countries, last I read, have been over visiting this company to figure out how can they do more of this in their countries. You know, these long hours are not always right. productive. You can only work so many hours. So anyway, th those are just some bigger thoughts I have on how I'd love to see workplaces being transformed. And if Reboot could play a small role in helping drive that transformation, that would feel great. Yeah. So making yeah. it less binary. It used to be either you worked or you didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could have sort of a part-time gig, but that was hard. I mean, my wife tried to go part-time initially when uh, she took her first hiatus from the workforce. And that became difficult because people, they would say, oh, of course, Karen, yes, I know you're part-time. And then on Tuesday, where's Karen? It's like, she doesn't work today. You know, it, it wasn't as easy back then as I think it's hopefully that it's becoming it's now. It's easier. You know, we a, we're, have a lot of um, contractors. And, yep. uh, and there's better tools now. Like you mentioned Slack. A lot, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of tools that are facilitating that. But I like to see that, that you guys are helping make that happen by showing that people can be productive, they don't have to work 80 hours a week, and they're bringing all these skills and experiences to the workplace that they can augment what a young person is bringing. And I'd love to see more people. My dad was 87 when he died, but when he was 85, he founded a charter school oh, for wow. low-income youth in Minneapolis. School's thriving. Wow. He was 85. He never stopped, he wasn't paid, but he never stopped working and being a productive member of our society and driving the economy. and. You know, that's kind of my vision for myself, too. And I just think a lot of people want to have purpose throughout right. their throughout long their lives. Life. Right. And so I would like to see that, too, yeah. that there's that ageism doesn't exist and that we can all tap in to our economy in ways that work for each of us. Well, it's a great note to end on. Thank you. So. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.